Welcome to The Compass, the weekly podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our series called From Rags to Riches, taken from the pages of the letter to the Ephesians. Do you live in Northwest Arkansas and need a church home? Let me take this opportunity to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 1410 North Porter Road of Fayetteville. If you have questions about the Word or about our ministry here in Fayetteville, let me encourage you to reach out. You can contact us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is sharing part two of a message from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, entitled, How to Pray for One Another. Let's listen together. This is message number nine uh, of our very slow walk through the book of Ephesians. It's our ninth message, and we're not through chapter one yet, but I promise you, once we get through this first chapter, we will make a little better time anyway. Uh, So uh, please stay with us for uh, another um, message today. This uh, chapter, uh, as I've tried to uh, emphasize, is an incredible portion of Scripture. Now, it is no more inspired than any other part of God's Word, but for believers, uh, I believe, uh, living today, it has a message we are in uh, desperate need of, of who we are in Christ and how we live because of that. I think that the wonderful truths of this chapter Uh, that we've been talking about and that we'll continue with today are things that we tend to forget if, in fact, we ever knew them to begin with. uh, In many respects, I think it's a matter of of having to have our minds and our hearts opened uh, to grasp a little more each time we read this chapter exactly what all God is saying to us. You can't read it one time, you can't study it one time, uh, and begin to uh, absorb all of the wonder uh, that is in this chapter. Now, we were talking about a couple of weeks ago how God uh, measures a church or what God is looking for in a church. And we find that there are three characteristics or three attitudes, three attributes mentioned in Ephesians 1 uh, that are mentioned in virtually every other letter that Paul wrote. And the sheer repetition of these three things is saying to us, this is very high on God's priority list. They are the attributes of faith, love, and hope. As he tells the Thessalonians, a faith that produces service or works, a love that produces uh, a willingness to sacrifice of ourselves, a hope that keeps us steadfast and helps us endure through all of the tests and struggles and challenges of life. Folks, those three things are what you and I will be judged upon on Judgment Day. How have we grown? How have we done in faith, love, and hope, exemplified by our service, our sacrifice, and our endurance. 
as you well know, there are so many that are your friends and mine, your fellow church members and mine, at least perhaps in the past, that have not endured through the tests of life. They have fallen out. They've grown discouraged. They've quit the Christian race. They no longer seek to pursue after God. They no longer seek to know Him better. And that in and of itself is a serious reason to question whether or not they ever knew Christ to begin with. Because the Bible says those who are of the faith will endure in that faith to the end. So faith, love, and hope is what we need. And we said that there are some specific commandments in the Bible, in the New Testament. In fact, some 25 to 30, they are commandments that build up faith, love, and hope. Do you remember what those commandments are? We have a name for them. I refer to them as reciprocal commands, but we know them as what? The one another's, the one another commands. Uh, love one another. Serve one another. Fellowship with one another. Show hospitality to one another. Encourage one another. And on and on the list goes that any Christian and any church that does that well is going to help, is going to be one of God's tools for building up faith, love, and hope in our brothers and sisters in Christ. I need you uh, to practice those one another's with me. We need to practice those with one another. That's why they are called the one another's of Scripture. Well, one of the prominent one another's is to pray for one another, right? We have this text. I believe it will be on the screen. This is the brother of our Lord speaking, James. And he says in James chapter 5, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And he gives us an example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That means he was a sinner like us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So why should we pray for one another? How do we pray for one another? Why do we pray for one another? When and where do we pray for one another? Folks, I want to say to you that I believe what Paul has to say about praying for one another in the second half of Ephesians 1 can be life-changing for you and me and our church. I believe, bottom line, we don't really know how to pray for one another. And as a result, oftentimes we don't do a very good job praying for one another. And that's not a problem unique to Calvary Baptist Church. It is unique to God's people today. We often don't know how to pray, and we don't know what to pray. We don't know why we need to be praying. And so what the upshot of all of that and the result is prayerlessness, as someone has said, our lack of prayer is the greatest sin of the church 
today. We often think of sin as something you do. Sometimes it's not doing what you've been told to do. It's the lack of doing. And as um, Samuel the prophet said to King Saul, I will not sin against God by ceasing to pray for you. And so when we don't pray for one another and we don't pray in the right way for one another, understand it becomes a sin before God. Now, uh, just as a quick uh, statement about chapter 1, uh, if you were to outline this chapter, you would outline it this way. The first 14 verses would be a eulogy. And I'm not talking about a eulogy as for a dead person. I'm talking about a eulogy in the sense that the word means a tribute, an honor, a blessing. God gives to us a great tribute and honor and blessing in these first 14 verses describing what God has done for us. Then verse 15 and 16, he shifts to thanksgiving and praise. And then verses 17 through 23, a prayer for these Ephesian believers. So look at your Bibles and let's begin reading with verse 15 and follow along as I read. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks be to God for it. Let me give you these three points. If you were with us last week, the precious few that were here on Vacation Sunday at Calvary. Uh, we talked about this first point, but let me pick up with it very quickly and move on to the other two points. The, first of all, the catalyst for Paul's prayer. The catalyst for Paul's prayer. What it was that prompted him to pray this prayer. What it was that motivated his prayer. And I ask you, what is it that prompts you to pray? What is it that motivates you to pray? What is the catalyst for your prayers? Well, we know that there is a commandment, for we know that we just read a moment ago from the book of James that we are to pray for one another. So we have a commandment to pray. Thank you, sir. We have a commandment to pray. So that is, that is good. We're following in obedience the Lord's command. 
And we as Christians also at times have a, have a sense of duty. We ought to always feel that sense of duty to pray. And I would suggest that it's good to feel that and to be motivated by that. But I would suggest to you that a sense of duty is not always a, a very strong motivation. We have a duty to do a lot of other things that we don't always do like we should, right? More often than not, our motivation comes in the way of needs that we have. We, we feel particular needs. We need God's encouragement. We need God's strength. We need financial help. We need guidance for a decision we're going to make. So we have needs, and we, and we pray for one another's needs. We say, pray for me. I, I'm facing this this week. Would you please remember me in your prayers? We also have sometimes emergency situations. Suddenly a family member, someone close to us, is, uh, is in an accident or comes down with a, an illness that even maybe is life-threatening, is facing a surgery of some kind that's very serious. And so we have these emergency situations. Sometimes it is not sickness. Sometimes it's the death in a family. Sometimes it's finances or some kind of, of impending doom or danger. And because of this, we need His rescue. And so we pray diligently. When we face emergency situations, that really motivates us to pray, does it not? I cannot tell you how many times I've stood in a hospital room or a hospital hallway or a waiting room with a family undergoing serious emergency situations, a child who is sick, and I've heard them promise, oh, if, if God will just heal my little Johnny, we're going to be back in church. We've been neglectful. We're going we're to get our lives right with the Lord. I've had them in, in times of funeral services in this very auditorium say to me in the death of a loved one, we're going to get back in church. We need to be here. But guess what? It's been years, and the last time that person said it was the last time they were here in that funeral. They never made even the next Sunday, even though God got them through a time of difficulty and emergency situations. Sometimes it's wisdom we're needing for a big life decision. Is he Mr. Right? Is this the one you would have me to marry? What college should I attend? What about that job offer? What about that, that big decision? Is it the right time to make that move, to start that new business, to buy that house, etc., etc., etc.? All these things are motivations to pray. And that's what we do. We pray. When that emergency situation or that need is there, there are so many causes because of the needs of people, because of the emergencies of life, because we need wisdom for decisions. But can I say to you that most of the things, now listen very closely, most of the things that motivate you to pray are temporary situations. And once the situation is over with or has been resolved, we tend to go back to our old ways of prayerlessness. Is that not the truth? Can I say to you that, that 
Am I, or ask you, am I the only one that struggles with that sometimes? I think we all do. All of these motivations are good. We need to pray about all of those things. But those are not the most important things to pray for. Those are not the primary reason we should pray. Those things do not have the power to revolutionize your devotion to prayer overnight. Paul gives us this. This is what he says is the catalyst for his prayers. It's the first three words of verse 15. For this reason. For this reason. This is what drives me. This is what motivates me. Motivates me to what? Motivates me to, to be ceaseless in my giving thanks for you. That's in verse 16. To be committed to continual prayer for you, remembering you always. For this reason, I, I do not cease to praise the Lord, and I do not cease to pray for you. What is the reason? The reason is everything he said in verses 3 through 14. Because God in eternity past chose you to be his children. Because Jesus in time and space came into the world and gave his life as a sacrifice for your sins to save you, to redeem you, to ransom you. Because even right now, He is preparing a vast inheritance for you in heaven. And because He has lavished, that's the word in Ephesians 1, He has lavished upon you His extravagant grace and mercy and love and devotion. You are the apple of His eye. You are the pearl of great price to Him. You are His great treasure. And He was willing to give his only begotten son for you and he has as a down payment on all that is to come he has given you the seal of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who marks you as a child of God because God has done all of this for you I do not cease to offer up praises to him and I do not fail in my continual prayers for you. Paul said, what drives me, what motivates me to be a praying man is what God has done, not only for me, but for you. Sometimes we need to just stop and take a look around the church family that gathers on Sunday. People in many cases sometimes, that you would never have found anything in common with. People you would never have personally chosen to be a part of your family. Sometimes we get stuck with our families, right? Both physically, literally, and also in our church family as well. But as we look around, what do we see? We see people that Jesus loved 
that in eternity past the Father saw and predetermined that that person would be one of his children. And he paid the ultimate price to make it happen. And he's lavished his grace on us. And he's been extravagant even to the point of what appears to be wasteful with his love for us. Like the father for the prodigal son. And we see people that God loved that much and we marvel because we know that we could have never loved them that much. And guess what? They could have never loved us that much either. But God did. And because of that, we're motivated. There's a catalyst there. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to offer up praises to God and prayer for you. That is the why we pray. And that's why prayer should come easy. Because even when there are no known needs to pray for, even if there's no emergency situation to pray for, even if there's no big decision that needs to be made, it's the fact that that person was an an object of God's love and God's devotion and God's sacrifice. And because of that, I want to pray for them. I want to pray that they'll become everything God desires that they would become and that I would become everything God wants me to be and that together we'll be able to show this lost and dying nation what it means to be a people truly under God. Amen? All right, that's the catalyst. That's why we pray, because God's done all that. Now, what about the content of Paul's prayer? What did he pray for these people? You don't find a sick list here. You don't find a prayer list of individuals with all their needs here. And again, please understand, there's nothing wrong with praying for those things. Isn't that what James told us? Is anyone sick? Let him pray. That's what he tells us. It's right to pray for the individual needs. But folks, listen to me. Listen closely. Our prayer lives are so earthbound... They are so earthbound so as to be almost an insult to God. The greatest need that you have in your life is not to be physically well. Is not to be physically thriving. In fact, guess what? God may have given you that ailment or that illness. It may be a thorn in the flesh like Paul had, that God was more glorified in his thorn than he would have been in his healing. That great loss you've experienced, though none of us would have ever chosen that, understand somehow in God's wisdom he saw fit to give it. And it is for his honor and it is for his glory and it is to shape me and make me into the image of the person he wants me to be. Notice what Paul prayed for. He prayed first of all a general prayer Then he prayed a very specific prayer. And we find this in verses 17 through the first part of verse 19. First of all, the general prayer. He said, I'm remembering you in my prayers, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation 
in the knowledge of him, that's speaking of Jesus, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And we have to stop mid-thought because Paul does in these verses what he did back in verses 3 through 14. He just talks and talks and talks and doesn't find any place to put a period, okay? So we kind of have to break it up ourselves. It's, it's like one long sentence in the Greek language, and that's the way that the Greek language is written here. So what is the general prayer? It is this, that God may give these believers the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now let me pause there for just a minute and tell you, believe it or not, that is your greatest need. Brock, that's your greatest need. Miss Pat, that's your greatest need. Miss Maribel, Joe, Steve, Kirk, that is our greatest need. More than physical blessings, more even than emotional encouragement and strength, more than any kind of bodily healing or strength, more even than other spiritual blessings, what we need first, foremost, ahead of all else is the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and it is the wisdom and the revelation that is found in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. In the knowledge of Him. And the knowledge of Jesus. Guess what? That's the greatest goal in life. Oh, you say, well, I already know Jesus. I, I met Jesus when I was nine years old. Revival meeting down at wherever. Yes, you may have met him then, but I'm going to tell you what, you didn't really get to know him then. You were introduced, and maybe that was the day you got saved, but I want to tell you something. You can know somebody, and you can know somebody. In fact, the Hebrew language acknowledges this in the Old Testament Scripture the, with the word yada, they that know their God, Daniel eleven thirty two. they that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Well, why is it so many people that say they know the Lord are not strong, they are weak, and they're not doing exploits, they are stumbling through life. Because they don't know Him in the sense of what it means to really know God. In an intimate relationship. To know and to be known so that we might be involved in one another's life for the glory of God. Knowing Jesus is the greatest goal. Having the spirit of wisdom and of revelation is the greatest need. Why is that the greatest need? Why does he go on to say, having the eyes of your heart enlightened? Because unless your heart is enlightened, unless the darkness is driven away by the light of God's truth, you have no hope of understanding life. You have no hope of understanding the test of life and the problems and the struggles of life. You have no way of even knowing if you're going to heaven or not. 
We, in fact, the Bible tells us that to have our eyes of understanding darkened is the same as sleeping the sleep of death. That's what Psalm 13 says. Psalm 19 says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. What does that mean? What does it mean to be darkened in our understanding, as Ephesians 4 talks about? You see, to see with the heart is to perceive not with physical eyes, but with eyes of faith. And he's praying that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that they may see life through eyes of faith, that they may see life from God's perspective. And folks, let me tell you, our greatest need of all is to see life from God's viewpoint rather than our viewpoint. When I'm looking through my own perspective, my own viewpoint, then oftentimes what God does, this is a mystery to me, I don't understand it. And it's one of the reasons why people give up on God and drop out of church and quit their faith because somewhere life dealt them a circumstance they could not make sense out of and they determined God has abandoned me. I prayed for deliverance, I prayed for healing, I prayed for whatever, and God didn't give it. God failed me, so I quit. What we need are eyes of faith, an enlightened heart to see from God's viewpoint that even if he doesn't give us all the specifics and all of the whys, we still have our eyes solidly fixed on him. Now, that's the general prayer. Listen, we need to pray for that for our church family and for our children and our grandchildren every single day. We need to pray that prayer that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Pray for that. Pray for that. Every bit as much or more than you pray for their healing or for their help or whatever, pray that prayer. Then notice how he moves to the specifics of his prayer. Down to verse 18. That you may know. He's going to mention three things. They're going to be on the board here. Number one, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And third, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Three specific things to pray for one another. That you may know what is the hope to which is called you. Remember, what is hope? It's not wishful thinking. What is it? It's confidence, assurance. It's what we can know, what we can take to the bank, what we can depend on, that we may know what is the assurance and the confidence to which he has called you. God has not called you to live a fearful, hesitant, cowering lifestyle. Now, again, the other side of it, he's not called you to arrogance or something else either. 
but he's called you to live a life of assurance and confidence of who you are in this world, of why you are here, and what is awaiting you in glory, so that no matter what this world throws at you, no matter how this country or circumstances around us may be going to hell in a handbasket, that you can live with a confidence as a child of God in this world. That's hope. That's assurance. And that you may know that you have been called to hope. Pray that. He said, I'm praying that for these Ephesian believers. And also, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, I really need you to focus in for just a minute because I'm going to tell you something here you probably have never heard. Not because I'm so smart, because I happen to find it. Okay? God revealed it to me. He opened the eyes of my heart to see this. So I want to share it with you. Now, when we talk about the riches of a glorious inheritance, what do we think about? We think about that inheritance that he mentioned back in verses 3 through 14, right? That he's given us an inheritance that even right now he's preparing it for us in heaven, that we're going to inherit everything that belongs to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are his children. We are princes, and we are princesses of the great and high king. We have a glorious inheritance. But look at the wording very carefully. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? Not to the saints, but in the saints. What is God's glorious inheritance? You say, well, he doesn't get one. Because he didn't have anybody before him. He's the one that gives the inheritance. But did you know the Bible talks about God having an inheritance? That God has a portion that he has inherited and that he glories in. And you know what it is? Get ready. It's you. It's you. The book of Deuteronomy 32.9 says, But the Lord's portion, or the Lord's inheritance, is His people. That God rejoices that you and I one day are going to come and be with Him. That we are his inheritance living as exiles in this country and in this world. That this world is not my home. I'm just a stranger here. I'm only passing through as a pilgrim to represent the true kingdom, the only one that is to last. And God treasures you. And God treasures me. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The saints are God's glorious inheritance. That's how he thinks of you. I've lived all my life, all 68 years of it, pretty much under the cloud of thought in my mind that God is continually and perpetually just ticked off at me. Now, folks, I know he is some of you. 
like Pastor Dan. I'm kidding. But that God is continually disappointed in me. Do you feel that way? That no matter what I do, I never feel like it is enough. Well, guess what? No matter what all I ever do, it wouldn't ever be enough in my flesh to please God. The point is, because of Jesus, He is not perpetually and continually ticked off and hacked off at you. He looks at you and me in loving eyes, and He treasures us. He loves us. Why would he be ticked off and hacked off continually at somebody that's had the blood of Jesus Christ, his own son, applied to their lives and to their hearts? Someone that he paid a price to save. We are his inheritance. And you know what? Paul is praying that these Ephesian believers, remember, they were Gentiles, they were new Christians, and they weren't for sure that they really had the same privileges and blessing that Jewish believers had. And Paul is telling them that they are one in Christ, even with the Jewish believers. And what he's saying to them is, you need to have your hearts enlightened, your spiritual eyes open to see things as they really are from God's perspective, that you can be reassured and know that you have been called to live confidently and assuredly in this life, and that you are God's inheritance, and He treasures you above everything and everyone else. And third, what is the immeasurable, it can't be measured, greatness of His power toward us who believe. That God's power is moving and working toward us, and His power that is moving and working toward us is not just great, it is immeasurable. That you're not weak in this life, that you don't have to stumble around in, in your inability. God is willing to aid you. God is willing to strengthen you. He is saying, you have the calling to hope. You are heirs. You have the power of God towards you. And you don't know them as you could and as you should. That's why I'm praying for you, he says, that you would know these things. He is praying that we would be spiritually, experientially conscious of God's power toward us as believers right now. Right now. Right now. Now, the catalyst for Paul's prayer, the content of Paul's prayer. Let me take just a couple of minutes and I'll close very quickly. The confidence of Paul's prayer. What kind of confidence could Paul have in this prayer that God would answer it? What kind of confidence do you have in prayer? What kind of assurance do you have? Let's pick up reading in verse 19 and read through verse 23 and see what he says. I believe our confidence in prayer, by the way, is not our personal goodness. It's not our righteousness. God is not going to hear and answer your prayers because you're a good boy, a good girl. Okay? It's not because of our ability to speak eloquent words or our faithfulness to pray three times a day 
or anything else of our own doing. Our confidence in prayer is in Christ and in Christ alone. Did you hear that? Our confidence in prayer is in Christ and Christ alone. Verse 19, he refers to the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, now listen to this, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's the power right there. That it's the power that the Father demonstrated when he raised Jesus up from the dead. This is the great might that is at work when God answers your prayers. That God is able. That it's according to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So when you pray, don't pray timid prayers. Don't pray fearful, afraid prayers. Pray boldly in the name of Jesus by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power. Now notice how he continues. And he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That is the authority. When he raised him from the dead, he demonstrated his power. But look what he did. He seated him in the heavenly places above all rule and all authority and power and dominion, giving him a name that is above any other name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. If Jesus has all authority, and he does, right? Guess what? That doesn't leave any left over for you and me. To use selfishly. All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. So we have power. We have authority. He is seated in the heavenlies. Verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church. Which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. That is his position. His position. Who is he? He is the head of the body. The church is the body of Christ. We participate with him in his ministry and in his position and in his authority and in his power because he is working not just randomly in this world. Guess what? He is working in the church. There is no such thing in the Bible. There is no such thing in God's plan. There is no such thing in God's economy of a solo Christian out there living their lives individually, just them and God, just God and me out here apart from the church. The body of Christ is the church, and God works in and through the church. His position, high and lifted up, he is the one that is the head of the body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. Power, authority, position, that's the confidence we can have in our prayers. We're praying to the one who raised Jesus from the dead. We're praying to the one who is seated high and lifted up on the throne of heaven. We are praying to the one who has that 
place of authority and position. We're praying to the one that is the head of the body that gives wisdom and direction and guidance to you and me as the people of God in this world. Well, I hope that passage will help you and me to know how to fulfill the one another command of pray for one another. Pray for spiritual enlightenment. It's our greatest need. Pray that God would open the eyes of our hearts, that he would help us to know what we have been called to. We've been called to hope, to confidence, to assurance in our living, that we are, that we are the riches of God's inheritance, and he has an inheritance awaiting you and me, and that we live with heaven in mind, and that we live because and by the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us as saints. Well, let's close by reciting this prayer recorded in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Can we have it on the screen? All right, read it with me as a prayer to close the message today. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.